Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Buddy, this is David, the Safety Doc, and welcome to Safety Doc Podcast number 54. So it is getting colder here in Wisconsin. Actually, was in the 60s a week ago, and we're down about 40 degrees since then. Today's episode will focus on the mass psychology of disasters, eight research findings that don't fit the narrative. So these are going to be things like, that's not what I was told about panic and, and kind of panic and disasters. This is kind of different. And uh, I'm going to bring you stuff, of course, that's going to, get out the rhetoric, and get in the facts. Um, so looking forward to doing that today. Kind of on this theme right now, maybe this trilogy. It sparked off a couple episodes ago when we talked about the um, district out, the school district outside of um, Cleveland, 22 miles outside of Cleveland, where the district administrator canceled a class trip to Washington, D.C. because parents said it's too dangerous. So instead, you know, well, I don't know if they're going to do it instead, but I, I did kind of contemplate this of um, it would be easy for a company to come in there and say hey we're going to offer a virtual field trip to washington dc it's going to be all safe you can do it in a gym or we can do it outside on the you know on the football field or whatever and we're going to walk around and you have your virtual tour guide and it's going to be awesome and you're not going to have to have the risk at all of the bus ride over and back plus that nasty washington dc you know that stuff isn't that far out there folks and it's horrible to think about that um, and I'm going to talk a little bit, too, about why that narrative is pretty plausible and the real pitfalls of that. I mean, it, it, it's the difference between a virtual walk through a forest and an actual walk through a forest. Um, they're completely different. And if you're not exposing to the natural world, you're not preparing for the natural world, you're going to be very fearful of the natural world, um, and you're, you're you're also very susceptible to um, whatever the narrative is that um, somebody tells you. You know, if you're basically dependent upon a, a tour guide in these settings and the reality that they've put together for you versus the subjective reality which you are gaining as you're walking through, for example, a forest, you know, and you're smelling certain things and you're getting a little bit of sap on your shoes and, and there might be a few mosquitoes buzzing around or just something like that. Um, leaves are, are crackling under your feet and what that feels like. Um, you can hear a brook off in the distance near the water. So so I'm just saying um, we have some real, real big things to think about. Real big things to think about. First, a thank you out to Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com, the nation's leader in online bullying and threat reporting software. Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com, Joe Bruze, the CEO, Santa Barbara, California. If your school district or your kids, you're listening to this, your parent, a grandparent, neighbor, the kids going to school, how do you report if there are threats? And also, right now, Sprigio is is really looking at um, getting into the, the side of, of what happens for kids who might be subjected to grooming-type behaviors and sex trafficking, um, how to identify that, how to report that. That's very tricky. A lot of it, – it, it's new. I mean, the, it's not new that that's happening, but it's new in reporting systems. Reporting systems really haven't gone there. So, again, Sprigio, keeping your community safe, starting with your schools, but keeping your community safe. The 405 Media, the 405 Media, John Grant, the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California. Hey, I am a part of the 405 Media. This show airs at 2 p.m. PST daily, followed by the Clary Podcast with economist, author, ballroom dancer, Aaron Clary, um, fossil hunter also. Aaron Clary, uh, listen to the Clary podcast. Get the rhetoric-free perspective of economics in the United States and so much more. The Clary podcast on the 405 Media. It is a league of extraordinary podcasters. 
You can also find Larry Roberts and the Readily Random Podcast, readilyrandom.com. I highly recommend it. Anytime an episode is released, I download it. I listen to it, readilyrandom.com. So some anecdotes. <laughs> One is it's Christmas time. And, uh, you know, we got, we got done putting out our Christmas de- decorations and, and, and they look pretty, pretty good, you know, I look very good actually. Um, but what's happening now is people are, are buying these inflatables and you've seen them, you know, it's not only for Christmas, it's, it's for the, you know, Halloween and Thanksgiving. Our neighbor put this massive inflatable turkey out in his yard. Um, you know, so it's like this thin nylon that's inflatable, the light on, inside. And, you know, the things to me, they're just tacky. They're tacky. Come on. Don't do that. No. And, and so, like, people are getting this, this, this idea that more is better. <laughs> and you can quickly fill up a yard with, you know, 20 foot inflatable Santa Clauses. Um, so it just doesn't have the Christmas feel, you know, like we've gone and we, we wrap individual branches on our red maple out front with a rope light and, and do a specific type of look, um, that takes time, you know, versus just taking down an inflatable, you know, um, massive Santa and, and, you know, power him up every night. So it, 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 Boy, I, I don't know. It just has, it, it just has a weird feel to it to me. I don't, if you, if you experience the same thing, but again, seeing it more at Halloween, now I'm starting to see it at Thanksgiving, but especially at Christmas. And I'm just like, uh, you know, when I was, I was growing up and I was probably like eight, nine years old, we go down and visit my grandparents. And there was a guy in town who, completely went all out in his yard with Christmas decorations. But he did things like he built a train track and had a holiday train that went all the way through his yard. And this thing was really awesome. I can't imagine what this guy's light bulb was back then, you know, or his electric bill is just crazy. But he, he was, he did all these things like, and he would build by hand. It was just amazing. So, you know, we're talking about 1980, maybe, and everybody would stop. I mean, you'd, you, we'd go down there and that'd be one of the things as soon as it got dark. I mean, that you'd go and you'd see this and, and cars would stop and it was an awe. Um, and, and that was really the cool part. And the way that quick Christmas windows used to be done. I remember going past the department stores in the community next to ours, which was about 30,000. So the JC pennies and things, like, things like that. And, and they would spend so much time in the windows and, and doing up all the windows, kind of like, was it Hirschbergers or Hirschners or whatever? And, in um, the Polar Express, when they they go by and in the train and, and everything is is done up in the in the window, so I don't know. It feels like a little bit of a lost era. My daughter is participating. My oldest daughter in living windows in our community, um, so they're replicating you know like a turn of the century and even before like some some winter scenes in in windows. You know like you know making clothes or or tanning hides i mean our community was like a a trading community you know along the the fox wisconsin river but um you know things like that so you know that's kind of cool um but and also these laser projectors that people are putting out in their yards they're projecting and and i guess the effects are kind of cool you know like the little little trees or stars that get projected onto, onto your house or you know your garage door or something but again that it just seems too easy and it, it seems too overdone. Like, you know, when you buy these things, there's only so many options and it really doesn't get unique. So, I mean, it, it just is, is, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it, you know? Well, I guess I do know how I feel about it. I don't like it. Although some of the stuff's kind of cool. It's so redundant. It's so redundant. It's not original. So I have a decision to make. I have uh, my my due notice for SoundCloud, which is the host here of the Safety Doc Podcast, SoundCloud, uh, which is largely you know for musicians. But I've I know other podcasters on SoundCloud. Um, I really haven't had an issue with SoundCloud versus the fact that you know a few months ago numerous articles in the paper soundcloud is going bankrupt and, and all these and they laid off like you know half their staff and stuff like this and um so i i'm i got my renewal notice and there are some limitations on soundcloud one is i cannot schedule a download and that comes in to be somewhat of an issue especially in summer you know when when we're doing different things on on weekends you know or or stuff like that um and i might not be here to 
to drop that podcast. Um, so it's, it's stuff like that. And, and that would be a really nice feature, which is out there. So basically I've got it down to two SoundCloud or Podbean. Libsyn is great, you know, but it's more money and I, you know, I'm not going to go there. Podbean can do everything. And I have a very good friend who uses Podbean, has had it, had Podbean for six, seven months, really likes it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm leaning toward Podbean, which means I'd have to make a migration from SoundCloud pretty fast, you know, probably within the next few, few days here. So I guess wait and see what happens. I'll, I'll change all the links, of course. Um, but I'm not sure if we're going to stay on SoundCloud or Podbean. So it's, it's tough. <laughs> You know, it is tough because SoundCloud, SoundCloud really hasn't let me down. I mean, the analytics aren't great. But, again, um, it's just this thing of what happens, you know, if suddenly SoundCloud implodes. Um, and we've seen that happen with companies because of finances. I mean, do I lose everything that I put in there versus with Podbean, it'll harvest everything pretty much over. And Podbean seems to be pretty stable. Um, so I don't know. It's one of those things. I just don't know. I don't know. I don't want to make, I don't want to change. So, um, hey, my Zoom 4 H4N Pro, Zoom H4N Pro came in. I'm going to pair it up with my camcorder. I'm going to be doing an interview with Justin Dooley probably next week. Um, we've kind of got it, we've got it roughed out. We've got it planned for next week, although I'm wondering if we shouldn't hold off till the first or, you know, into the, into January. Here's, if you're watching this, ouch. If you're watching this on, um, on YouTube, here is my new toy, my new H4N Pro, which this thing is awesome. Um, yeah, the 32 gigabyte um, SanDisk card I ordered off of Amazon was a complete dud. I couldn't format it on this or on my main computer. I wouldn't even read it, so I just tossed it. Um, there's nothing on it. And, um, you know, so, yeah, just a waste, just a waste. Went to Walmart, got a 16 gig card. That thing, autom- I mean, it just it worked. I've heard that though with Sandus. I've heard with you know buying off of of Walmart or not Walmart, Amazon. It, it's a gamble with that, and I kind of knew that. But but this thing's been awesome, and I'm just learning it. You know, going through some of you are like, yeah, I've had like that, or, or like you know the the versions far up from it. But it does allow you to plug in some XLR mics. I do have one XLR mic that I'll plug in to the bottom. Um, so I do college, you know, course lectures too. And I'm kind of confined to right here and doing those. I did a couple last year where I set up my camcorder and I was like outside or on my porch. Those are okay, but it's really hard to get good audio, especially if there's even a little bit of a breeze. So this thing will hook up. Um, I do have the cord. It will hook right into my camcorder. And then I can run um, my XLR uh, lapel mic off of this and really do some awesome video plus great audio. Uh, so really looking forward. I'm going to put this guy back down here before I totally wipe him out. Um, I got to get a different tripod. I mean, this tripod's great. It's made to be on a table, but I want a standalone tripod um, to go with that too. Uh, so yeah, I got my H4N. Yay! H4N. Met with Justin Dooley, and we are um, ready to talk about you know going pretty far down this rabbit hole of the variables influencing whether or not. Um, or basically how one reacts upon discovery of an accident scene. Just, Justin and his wife um, were going to a wedding and, and arrived upon an accident scene where a guy in a motorcycle had an accident. So, um, But, you know, it's, it's really challenging, especially um, like I drive the interstate, so, to, so is Justin. You know, if anything happens on, on the interstate, it's so tight the way that they bring in these concrete barriers. You don't have, you don't really have much for an option without putting yourself at risk. Or even if something happens to you, you know, if the car just boom powers down and, and, and you slow down, you can't really, you don't have a place to pull off. There's like three feet and then there's a concrete barrier. I mean, what do you do? So some interesting things though, we, we kind of talked, we, we talked about one is this whole thing of singularity. So singularity meaning, um, in general, the way I'm interpreting it, for this is singularity meaning that artificial intelligence um, or machine intelligence, I should say, you know, it reaches the level of human intelligence around 2040. And and, and we're talking about more of, of, you know, this, this blending of, of human intelligence with machine intelligence, but really like 2040 of, of where this, this can really happen. Um, and, and these are runoff of, of numerous studies which have indicated 2040 to 2045 of being the mean. So some mean it indicates it's going to happen sooner, some mean it's going to happen later. But anyway, 
Um, and so, you know, as Jess and I are talking about this whole thing with, with car crashes and all that, right now, I, I looked up, you know, through the, the NHSTA um, statistics, but basically, you know, by, about 100 people a day die in car crashes. Um, and 90% of that's caused by human error. So we, through automation, machine learning, AI singularity, you know, the, these autonomous vehicles, which will be out there by 2040, 2045, certainly, um, you are going to be basically decreasing road fatalities by 90%, meaning, um, you're going to, you know, instead of 100 people dying a day, it's, it might be like 10 people dying a day related to road, um, you know, related to crashes. So you are going to have 30,000 plus people alive, um, not only alive, but people who have not been in accidents um, because of, of what is just going to happen with this, this progression of technology towards singularity and automation with vehicles. It's, it's phenomenal to think about that. And I also ran some numbers based on the um, – National Transportation Association, or I don't know, tell it a society association group, friends, buddies, whatever. Um, but you know, the federal stats of say, you know, it's it's like eight hundred billion dollars a year in direct economic or societal costs due to these these accidents. And you know, we would be decreasing, we'd be knocking that down by like seven hundred million dollars, or really. It would be the equivalent of, you know, we had Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Harvey, the wildfires, floods, and everything like that. If we took the total cost of those, you know, of what happens every two, three years, that probably gets us up into that range of about $700 billion. So we're looking at this huge economic benefit also of, of this happening. And, and it's kind of, I guess where it gets kind of weird is just, when Justin and I were talking, I said, you know, this discussion in 2040, if we had this discussion 25 years from now, it's not it's not really a discussion because any vehicle goes off the road, it's automatically, you know, going to be triangulated, that there's going to be automatic rescue that's going to be there. The other vehicles will have a certain response. The other vehicles might have certain safety measures built into them of things that you can can use in that. There might be scanners and, and ways to advise you. I mean, it, it's just going to be really weird. Or, like, how many vehicles will be autonomous without drivers without drivers and riders just on the highway, which will be there to um, arrive and, and provide robotic assistance to accidents. I don't know. But I heard this week that there was a, a robot, an actual robot, so like a robot arm and everything that flew a Boeing um, uh, air, you know, airliner across the, I don't know if it was cross country or across the world, flawlessly. So um, so kind of weird because Justin and I talked about this. I said, yeah, like in 25 years, this will be it like a real historical conversation because these type of things won't even be issues anymore. So talking about that, hey, you know what is an issue? Listening to the Safety Doc podcast all the time. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now... Back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. What in the hell was that all about? And welcome back to the Safety Doc Podcast. So, um, a virtual reality field trip companies are going to be on the rise and they're going to prosper to due to parental fears of parents being in public spaces. We talked about this a few podcasts ago in the district right outside of Cleveland, Ohio, where the superintendent and the parents said, hey, we're not taking this trip. It was the parents really kind of forcing the superintendent's hand. But we don't want our eighth grade kids to go to D.C. because there's terrorism that could happen there. It's a terrorist target and also mass shootings. I did the statistical analysis saying, 
um, well, the bus ride to and from Washington, D.C. is about the same risk for student fatality as actually being in Washington, D.C., and both those are significantly less than, say, being hit by lightning. But, you know, this is where rhetoric, this is where fear takes over. So virtual field trip companies, I am telling you, are going to be all the rage. Now, the problem with that is, you know, you can point out all the great assets of that saying, boy, we can do all of these field trips. We can expose people to to different environments, different settings, different cultures, things that they would have never been able to do, cost, time prohibitive, all of that. But somebody's programming these. There's some vanity involved. There's some perspective involved. And you can pretty much bet that if it is a tour of Washington, D.C., and there's some company putting this together and they're filming someone and doing some 360 thing on this perfectly sunny day, this is going to be portrayed as this awesome, incredible place and everything positive about you know liberty and justice for all and whatever. Um, it's not going to be anywhere close to the authentic experience, one, of being there, and two, the narrative that's going to go with this and the, the documents to help parents or kids understand about D.C. and politics and, and the founding fathers and libertarianism and so, so forth, those are all going to be out the window. It's going to be whatever the agenda is. It could be a leftist agenda. It could be more government is great government. And then what you're going to have is this is during a formative stage of life for these kids. You're going to have this transference dynamic, which I talked about a long time ago in a podcast far, far away. But anyway, um, from 1980 to 85, for example, we had a huge transference dynamic of in, in people in their formative years, which are usually like, um, you know, middle teens to early 20s, as far cognitive formative years. Um, people being told, you know, 1980 to 85, uh, Reagan had the Strategic Defense Initiative, um, space shuttle, which the Soviets thought was armed. Um, Nina had 99 red balloons. Um, Sting had, I hope, the Russian soldier children, too. And ABC um, in 1983, the movie The, the Day After, which was basically um, a, a, a complete depiction of nuclear war between the United States and Russia. And uh, so disturbing, in fact, that Gorbachev and Reagan said it was one of the reasons why they signed a pact to decrease the number of nuclear weapons that the United States and Russia had. Um, but during 9-11, the rescue on 9-11, the boat rescued 500,000 people from lower Manhattan, the average person 40 years old in the financial sector. But if you take that 40-year-old in 2001 and back that up, they definitely lived in the formative stage of their life during during that 1980 to 85 span, um, where they were basically told, you trust the government, you trust the government fully and completely to protect you from the Soviets, or you could replace that with the terrorist or whoever is on the outside and is trying to attack you or this country. You fully vest and believe in the government. So if you do this virtual reality field trip stuff, who's who? <laughs> Who's to say that that can't be put together to some narrative that that really puts you very dependent upon um, on government? I, I'm just saying the opportunity is is there. So um, recently in Wisconsin, there was a conference called Slate, and they have these around the country. And I'm getting a little thirsty here. It's a holiday mug, so um, voice gets dry though. The humidity isn't very high down here in the Safety Doc Podcast Studio, which is in the uh, basement of the Safety Doc Podcast House. It's a finished area, but yeah, the humidity drops, the temperature drops. Um, so there is a point when uh, working and and podcasting and producing down here in the winter months. Um, really becomes um, a test of of endurance. Um, so yeah, yes. Um, can you do it? Can you do it without freezing? Yes, I can. So, um, Slate School Leaders Advancing Technology and Education. So this started a few years ago. Slate conference. And it's gotten fairly big. Basically, what what they talk about 
is how to use technology in schools. You know, and technology is all great, and here's curriculums. And, and now I looked at a lot of the documents that came out from Slate. Like, I kind of trolled it a little bit on Twitter and, you know, some websites and stuff like that. I was just curious. But, I, I mean, I kind of know what this is about anyway. Um, but it's talking about how we got to get kids involved in STEM and how we got to get kids involved in, in, in um, you know, just in teachers enthusiastic about, you know, technology and education. Now, granted, you know, that that's not good. That's not bad. That's that's, you know, that's a position of saying technology is here. We need to become uh, more aware of technology and how to use it with instruction, how to position students to to best use technology in the future, because most careers are going to be tech, have a technology component because, I mean, look where automation is happening right now. Um, you know, I, I watched a video with the new Amazon uh, factory being built outside of Atlanta with uh, the massive amount of automation that that is going to have, you know, versus the true number of employment of humans. It's just phenom phenomenal the, the, the number of, of um, you know, auto of, of robotic devices versus the lower number of humans. Some of the things, though, that, that bothered me at the Slate conference is I'm reading through the notes and a lot of it is like, Cooperation and collaboration, and 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 working with you know um, people across in different countries, and and you know technology competence and all that. The reality is, <laughs> in my perspective, this is pretty pretty narrow vision, and and this might work right now, and this probably will work until we hit singularity, which is um, targeted for about twenty forty. Which isn't far away. So I mean, these you're talking about kids in school right now. Within their career span, singularity will happen, or meaning that um, I don't know if you want to call art of artificial intelligence or computer intelligence will match and then start to rapidly exceed that of human intelligence, and things will become rapidly automated. Um, and there's not going to be a lot of need for employment. It's not like you're going to be hiring people to fix the computers the, and robots. They will fix themselves. So you're going to have issues coming in of universal basic income and sense of agency and purpose and things like that. Um, so these things don't get discussed at all at these slight tech technology conferences. Everyone's patting each other on the back and, hey, great job. We've got personal, you know, one-to-one -one devices in our schools and we're using, you know, whatever, raspberries and, and we're making, you know, power, not power, you know, prezzies and PowerPoints and videos and stuff. This is all okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with this. But part of these conferences need to have sections to talk about universal basic income as a result of automation, um, what that might look like and how students might prepare for something like that. Um, you know, I think also a critical analysis of, um, you know, what it's going to be like. I mean, what also, when you educate people, when you educate students, I mean, this this totally flips curriculum. Like, you don't have to teach the fifty state capitals. I mean, you can look all you can look it up. I mean, you don't need to do that anymore. You've gotten to a point where you don't need to do that. So it's going to change a lot of curriculums. Um, even you know the the way that people, um, how should I say this? Um, things that people do. I mean, f even. F their, their daily activities from you're not going to teach people how to, to wash laundry anymore. I mean, the machines will be advanced enough where you'll basically have the laundry, you'll insert into the machine, it will sort it out, it will put the appropriate amount of detergent in, it will clean it, and you'll have it, and everything will be done. So it, it gets into this thing where I think agency and purpose gets to be a really, really big part of this, and it's not part of these conferences. Because right now we're still in this phase where if you can teach a kid how to use, you know, a raspberry or something like that, it, it's pretty cool. And these people, you know, are, are, I think they're not in touch with reality in these conferences. They're not looking at the bigger picture of saying, you know, this conference 25 years from now is going to be completely different. Because what are you going to teach in schools that is going to be really relevant to somebody going out and getting a job? Because the job at General Motors, the job as an accountant, the job as a doctor, are you going to be getting a job as a doctor? Not really. I mean, they're a doc, I mean, most of, of of the medical procedures will be done through robotic processes. Uh, maybe um, you have someone who will be a, a medical technician that will be overseeing some of these things. 
Um, I don't know. I mean, but we, and we've already seen robo advisors in finance. So you're, you're just incomplete with this. You're incomplete with this whole slate philosophy. And it really, it really bothers me. It really bothers me to no end because people leave there thinking they're doing the greatest thing. Um, when really they need to be having these, these discussions about like, you know, what does universal basic income mean because of the move towards singularity? What is singularity? How are we going to navigate that? How are we going to get kids ready for that? Because, you know, hey, we're talking, you know, less than 25 years out for that. So, I mean, you know, you're working with, with, you know, 10, 12 year olds. I mean, they're, they're not even going to be 40 by the time that happens. So, um, I, again, I, I think these things get superficial. I think a lot of these conferences are superficial, maybe too feel good. And I'll just say it. I think they're too feel good. Um, and, and nobody wants to dive into like, there's two sides of this that are going to come together. The other side is, yeah, what are you, what are you going to do for the, what jobs are you preparing students for, for 2040? I mean, because there, there aren't going to be as many jobs. I mean, cars are going to be uh, autonomous. You know, transportation systems are going to be autonomous. They already have machines which can build houses, um, you know, that can lay brick at an enormous rate. Um, they have machines that can inspect bridges. They have to have an engineer to go over those, but you don't have to shut down the bridges and things like that. I mean, so, um, yeah, that's that's the question is going to be how to interface with these and then how to also have a sense of agency and purpose in a time when, in a time when, because of universal basic income, which is which is going to happen, and you can work on top of basic income, I'm guessing, um, you know, but what are you going to do? Because otherwise, what you're starting here is you're going to have kids who are going to become young adults, who are going to become adults, who are going to live in a virtual reality society. They're going to throw on their virtual reality goggles at that point, which will just become you know, some type of eyepiece, which will project out like Google Glass or whatever, and you'll live a virtual, a largely virtual life. I mean, you know, it's both scary and not scary. It depends on how you look at it. But these conferences are very naive in the way that they look at it. So what I observed was more, yeah, about collaboration by means of technology to think that elementary students today will thrive in technology fields solely by going into tech fields is short-sighted. Uh, most learn societal, they must learn societal trends in, in that there are pending layoffs across blue and white collar industries, um, you know, that, that are going to happen when they hit the, the workforce. There is neither innately good or bad, but if we draw from purpose, from labor, from purpose, drawing your purpose, my purpose from labor, because I do this job, I have meaning, you're, you're really in trouble. <laughs> so, um, hey. A word here about the Safety Doc Show before I get into some of our other podcasts and our main topic for today. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin. And the Safety Doc Podcast. What in the hell was that all about? Welcome back to the Safety Doc Podcast. I have a roaring fire upstairs. Make it nice and cozy. So, yeah, that's where I'm going to be as soon as this podcast is done. But I'm glad to be spending this time with you. You are not the typical audience. You're smart folks. You want to know the facts. You want to get rid of the rhetoric. And I'm here to provide that to you. Thank you so much for following me on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Go in and follow. That's that's great. Go to the website, SafetyPhD.com. I've got my blog there. Feel free to make posts. I'll, I'll respond back. I promise. So some other podcasts. One is um, that, that I follow. I think you should follow. 
the awareness podcast, Hector Solis, the awareness podcast. Um, it, you can follow on Twitter at awareness pod. So the awareness podcast, a uh, very in-depth, uh, citizen journalism, uh, covering areas, uh, bullying, uh, sex trafficking, and, and just so much more, uh, Hector Solis does an awesome job, puts a ton of time into making a very crisp, concise uh, podcast. I, I wait for everyone to come out and download. Um, and it, it, I'm so like just waiting um, because, you know, Hector puts a lot of time into, into these. And when they're released, I'm like, boom, it's downloaded and I'm playing it. I'm loving it. So Hector Solis, um, but the awareness podcast, you can find that. Um, the Clary podcast or dun, 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 Captain Capitalism.blogspot.com, Captain Capitalism.blogspot.com. Aaron's been around um, on the internet for a long time. Um, he's going to give you the rhetoric free aspects of economics as they impact you, family, help you plan. Has several books out there. I did a review of Reconnaissance Man which I think is, is an awesome book. It's, it's a book that actually flies in the face of these virtual reality field trip. People are saying, hey, you don't have to tour the country to figure out where you might want to work or go to school, you know, and live. You know, like I love to ride bike. So living in Wisconsin, of course, is, is absolutely great for that. You know, and, and of course it's not because it's, it's winter and my bike is stored away right now. Well, I have friends in Arizona are like, hey, the biking was awesome today or my good friend out in Santa Barbara. Hey, I went biking today, 60 degrees, sunny, like, yes. So um, the Clary podcast and also Readily Random, readilyrandom.com, Larry Roberts, check that out. He's a member of the uh, League of Extraordinary Podcasters on the 405 Media. And check out uh, Marianne West, uh, Janice uh, Fries, I believe, but it is the Sustainable Living Podcast. It is on Libsyn Sustainable Living Podcast, a variety of hosts. I, I use that as my change-up uh, podcast. It's 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 when you're throwing the hardball and the curveball. This is the change-up um, when I just want to listen to people who have who have kind of disconnected from the mass media, disconnected from what society. You know the the beaten path that everybody's supposed to go down, and and, and they have a counter to that, and it kind of gets you back. It's it, it's not one of these, uh, I want to say it, granola feely touchy podcast. It, it really is genuine, um, and helping you to get perspectives of people who have um, lived in either tiny houses uh, or. There was a guy lived with his family. Um, they rented a room in a hotel, not a hotel, like a motel. And he was like frying up bologna and he went outside and found some onions and put those in and then decided, hey, you know, like we could grow vegetables in people's yards and and take care of them and, and take 75% of the harvest, 25% could go to the people and this we could make this into an industry. And, and he did it. They did it all over, not only in California. He went up to Michigan and did it too, so cold weather climate. But um, there's so much um, in the Sustainable Living podcast, so just just check that out. It's a good change of pace, good change of pace. Um, so we're going to talk today about the mass psychology of disasters and emergency evacuations, a research report, and implications for practice. This is from 2007. Dr. John Drury and Dr. Chris Cocking, Department of Psychology, University of Sussex. So uh, some research findings that don't fit the narrative. I, I've, I've put these down. We're going to go through them. Um, number one, okay, downplaying the importance of meaningful communication with the irrational crowd may develop a distrust of the authorities. In turn, this may mean valid information may be ignored or not acted upon by the public in the future. Uh, we actually saw this. Um, we saw a good time. We saw a very good timeline of information come out during 9/11. I went back and I, I checked that several times. Um, there was there was uh, accurate information that was being released after the Twin Towers were attacked. I mean, being released through um, New York City um, within you know an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. What's running? What's not running? Here's what we're doing. Whatever. Even before what was it? Tower Seven fell at the World Trade Center. So when you do that, okay. When you when you do that, you come out and you take the lead on a narrative and say, "Here's what we know." 
um, instead of like waiting or being dodgy about it, you are so much better off. So um, if you don't come out and say, you know, what's happening, people are going to come up with their own stories and you're going to lose control over the situation. And then when you present your account of what's happening, you not only present your account, you also now have to debunk other claims just to be on that same uh, playing field. So you come out and you say, listen, this is what we know. This is what we know. And we don't, as we get more information, we're going to get it out to you. We're going to come out in another hour or another 90 minutes with a press release or something like that. And people will be like, okay, like you're taking the lead. They identify with the leader. A little leadership goes a long way. And Dr. Paul Rapp, head of military medicine, shared that with me. As you know, he said, Dave, just remember that a little bit of leadership goes a long way. Um, so, yeah, basically people who, who figure that they're not going to let the bad news out um, because it's going to freak people out, that actually freaks people out a hell of a lot more than if you let the bad news out. So, um, number two, people tend to seek to exit the same way they enter. Now, here's what we're talking about. If you go into, like, a building or into a location, um, think about Vegas and, and, and the shooting that happened out there at the concert. But people tend to seek to exit the same way they entered, even when a marked exit door might be near. And and that's also like in theaters. So like there's an exit door, it says exit, right above it, in red it's exit. But you don't go out that door. Nobody goes out that door ever, okay? So um, the fact is you're not, you're not trained, you're not motor familiar, you're not accustomed to doing that. So what you're going to do is it's not a familiar or intended route, you're going to try to go back out the lobby. And that's where you really have to be cognizant. And that's what I'm telling you right now is is this whole thing of, you know, even an active shooter, for example, is like run, hide, fight. But it could be fire. It could be other things. Um, you you The first thing is not run, for God's sakes. The first thing is to evaluate your environment and to look at the heuristics or the options that are available to you. And and this doesn't mean that this takes five minutes to do. This This can take 10 seconds to do. But that's the first thing that you do. And you're like, there's the exit sign. We're going out that way, which is like 10 feet away versus trying to work our way from, through the lobby. Because we know we came in through the front doors, which we know where the front doors are. And we think we have to exit through the front doors. Believe it or not, this is what happens. People try to go back the same way that they came in, even if an exit is clearly marked. So number three, people often do not recognize the emergency um, or act quickly enough, meaning... They don't have situational awareness. Uh, you have to have situational awareness 100% of the time. I've, I've trained myself, I believe, to do that. Like, I believe I am situationally aware. And I can actually sense it. I can sense it that wherever I go, whatever I do, I'm, I'm aware of my surroundings. I'm aware of how other people are interacting with each other, with the surroundings, um, and how my being in those surroundings, you know, might impact those surroundings. But... Um, I'm very, very, very aware. And it seems since I've done that and that, that skill just hones itself once you do that more, um, I'm picking up on things that are happening that other people don't pick up on for seconds, if not minutes, or much longer after that. Like I'm picking up almost, um, you know, instantly or anticipating things that are going to happen and I can position myself to best um, handle those situations. So, this skill becomes, okay, situ if you're, you, you're in the mode of situational awareness 100% of the time, meaning like you know where you are, you know what's happening around you, you're, you're aware of it, um, that skill becomes the default, and you see the world in a way that others don't. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to do that. I believe I do that. I believe I do that. That's through practice, but after a while it becomes automatic. Do that, um, meaning you're, you're just aware Look around you. What are people say? Where are your exits? Um, just you know what what what's happening? Is there any agitation? Is there anything that's unsettling? Is there any any position you know that you're in where you think if anything happened, this isn't where I really want to to be? Um, so it, you know it's almost like seeing into the future, and these patterns you know they begin to unfold. You get to recognize things, and you will see, you will see things before other people will even know that they're going on. And you'll be able to react and to, to, to benefit yourself and your family. So it's a, it's a huge asset. Uh, number four, freezing during a disaster takes two forms. So one is when, you, when somebody says they froze during a disaster, 
you you think of the literal term of that where they're like, oh, I couldn't. I was just so overwhelmed by the stimuli coming in that I couldn't move. I didn't do anything. Um, you know, it's like if you're watching a parade and a vehicle suddenly veers off into the crowd because the steering failed or something like that or, you know, whatever. You know, these old these old vehicles that they, they drag out only for parades. Um, you know, things like that happen or the brakes fail and it goes down a hill and hits some people. So, you know, it's people that freeze. They're like, oh, my goodness, I saw this thing coming at me and, and I just overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. It physically froze. That happens. The other part, though, is this 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 freezing which is becoming disassociated or psychologically distanced from the reality of what has happened or what is happening and, and you waste time in appropriately uh like tidying desk or organizing areas waiting to power down computers folding up your chair <laughs> you know if you're if you're you know gathering your your little bag or something that you might have brought with you with your, you know, cold water or something if you're if you're watching a parade. I mean, these are goofy. They happen, though. It happened. So in Amanda's, um, Amanda Ripley had a book um, that came out after um, the 9-11 attacks, and she talked to uh, numerous survivors who were in the Twin Towers who evacuated. And a lot of them said, yeah, after the collision of the planes into the towers, um, you know, what they were doing for the, you know, four minutes following that, is they were clearing off their desks, they were, you know, putting things that they might need later or whatever, powering down their computers, you know, stuff like that. They weren't running to the exits. They weren't running down the stairs. They were basically cleaning up their work area, you know, gathering the things that they 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 needed. Or, you know, here's a picture of my family. I should probably take this with me and stuff. Like, I mean, it's just crazy. It is just crazy. So it just overwhelms people. So they either go into a freezer, this disassociate it behavior type thing which is really weird i don't want you to do either of those okay i don't want you to to do either of those you survey here's what i got to do to keep myself and my family safe and here's damn well what i'm going to do in order to make those things happen so um this disassociated behavior is much more common than is recognized and it certainly shows over the course of hundreds of pages of legal depositions that I go through. I can definitely tell when I go through legal depositions as an expert legal witness when people are experiencing disassociation from a, an event and all of a sudden when it hits them of, oh, my goodness, like this is this is really the event and this was my role in it and this is how this impacts me. Um, so it, it's crazy. Number five, 25% of survivors of a disaster experience PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, or as President George Bush um, has said, uh, post-traumatic stress injury, I prefer that term better, 25% of survivors um, experience some type, um, some type of PTSI. So Our Lady of the Angels fire occurred on December 1, 1958. Um, I believe 95 uh, people perished, 92 are students who... who it was, it was a fire occurred at the end of the school day in a, in a school, Catholic school. Uh, 92 students and three nuns died. And, and there was also, and so a lot of these, um, uh, a lot of the survivors um, experienced where it was very difficult for them to hold a job. Uh, some who lived in the neighborhood had to leave out. They couldn't leave. They couldn't, um, you know, look at the school. They couldn't see people that they knew who were either directly involved in it or, you know, they had a child who perished in it, um, and and they told their stories years and years after, and just said there was no healing, there was no closure, and and the diocese wanted to kind of wash over it quickly. Is weird because they tore the building down, and um, and they built another school on the site. <laughs> I mean, it was it just really strange. But and and there was there was a just a, just how this was framed out too. So that Christmas, so this happened on December 1st, 1958. Uh, so at the Christmas service, the priest said to the congregation um, that he said, baby Jesus really wanted to have a great birthday party. So he gathered these special children. So he's talking about the 30, the 92 children who perished in this fire. And I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, this this is just so out of touch with reality of something like that you would even say. But then what happened is the other the, the, the other the students who didn't perish, you know what their reaction was? Um, they were like, were we not good enough to be selected by God to come up and to be with him and to be with Jesus? Were we not good enough? 
And now they're living with this whole thought of, well, what is my life worth? You know, my life wasn't worth as much as, as the lives of those that perished. This is what actually people said, you know, years later, um, students who had been at that school at the day of the fire. So just, just weird. Um, there are some losses we will never recover from. So William Durant was the co-founder of GM, also the founder of Frigidaire. So, um, in 1929, the stock market crash uh, left him bankrupt by 1936. He lost $40 million in the bank in the stock market crash. And, and yeah, he went bankrupt in 1946. He, GM then gave him a small pension, very, very, very small pension. He lived very small house, modestly, barely got by. He suffered a stroke in 1943. He tried to get back on his feet a couple times. He couldn't do it. Could never do it. Could never regenerate what he did in starting GM and Frigidaire. Suffered a stroke in 43 left him a, a quote-unquote semi-invalid, and he managed a bowling alley, and he was like slinging hamburgers in Flint, Michigan until he died in 1947. He was basically broke. So people that knew him said he guy was a shell of himself. And there are numerous studies who that, that cite that once you have, have suffered suf, such a catastrophic kind of professional loss, you know, a career loss, a lot of people never bounce back from that. They never do. Um, so that's really tough. And that's something I go back in this whole slate conference thing of like, what if you are the best engineer or whether you are the best accountant and you get told one day, Hey, your job's been automated. Have a good one. So I think we need to do a better job of preparing people to one, have multi sources of, of career and income, and then also multi-source of, of uh, being validated. What was it? Boeing, I think, had um, a number of layoffs a few years ago. And the engineers, uh, uh, some of them just completed suicide. They just said, this was my whole life of being an engineer with Boeing, and I'm not that anymore, and I don't know what my identity is, and, and that's the end of it. So number six, contagion behavior is simply copying the behavior of others. So, you know, if if you're outside and a crowd of people are running past you screaming hysterically, they're all going in one direction, your tendency might be to, to, to join in with them because they're running from something, right? Um, so one person, and this could have all started with one person who just explained, who, who um, exuded confidence and was like, this is what we have to do, even though he had no idea what the hell he's talking about. And he started running, and others follow him, and you then join a suboptimal outcome when you do that. So, again, this whole contagion behavior, do not join into this contagion behavior without analyzing what your options are in your situational awareness because it might not be in your best interest to follow the, this this group. Um, and, and, again, that, that happens. So... Seven, panic is far from being the typical reaction to a disaster. This kind of plays into number six here, contagion behavior. Actually, in fact, it has been noted that in 0.8%, okay, 0.8% of cases, including the atomic bombing of Japan in 1945 and the September 11th World Trade Center attacks, that panic typically doesn't happen. Panic typically doesn't happen. It's far more overstated. You know, we talk about war, the world, stuff like that. But actually, 0.8% of cases, it happens. Less than 1%. Um, number eight, specifically, actual behavior in mass evacuations tends to conflict with the predictions of the panic model in at least three ways. So people saying, everybody's going to panic. Okay, there's three, um, three ways, points of data that conflict with that. One is antisocial or selfish behaviors are rare and tend not to spread to others. That's a fact. Number two, evacuations are often orderly and they're not stampedes, a fact. Number three, helping behavior and cooperation rather than individualized, competitive, and selfish behaviors are common. That's a fact. That was shown in 500,000 people being rescued from 9-11 through Battery Park, through boats, Harbor Rescue. That The helping behavior of helping people that you don't know, people who are there, you're in this common predicament. Um, again, that that happened. So this whole thing of like everybody's going to freak out and there's going to be panic, um, that happens in less than 1% of, of situations. Uh, number, and I added number nine on here. You know what? I just did because, hi, that's just me wanting to help you guys out here with the number nine, a bonus one. It's like, God, safety doc, you are really, you're on your game. You're on your game. So number nine, research on crowd 
events such as riots and protests have shown that crowd violence, in quotes, far from being random and uncontrolled. It's limited by the definitions of appropriate conduct associated with the group's social identity. In relation to current concerns, one of the key ideas developed in this research on crowd conflict is that of the distinction between the psychological crowd and the aggregate. Here, so let me clear this up. There seems to be a crucial difference between an aggregate, or meaning like the total, such as a crowd of people milling around a shopping center. I mean, people like just going out right now, Christmas shopping, those are just people Christmas shopping. They're there just to do their own individual things at individual stores. That's different than people who are at a football stadium, like at Lambeau Field, who are all supporting the Packers, you know, largely. They're supporting the team, supporting the team. They're all there for that purpose of the team. That's a different, you know, that's a different, crowd than than that crowd at the shopping mall um the football supporters come together as a crowd with a common aim and act you know like they sing they chant go pack go go pack go together they feel as one you know they're high-fiving each other after after there's a touchdown none of this is true for the crowd of, of shoppers hey you got 10 percent off high five low five da, 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 da. yay um, the football supporters are united by a shared identity while the shoppers are divided by their distinct personal identities. You know, um, the research on crowd conflict also identified some of the ways that a collection of disunited people might become a psychological crowd, such as through a common experience of, I don't know where the hell it was. What in the it's hell gone. was that all it's about? Gone. But if there's a common experience in the mall, you know, like if the ceiling caves in on the mall because it's been too much snow or something like that, then it becomes a shared experience of trying to rescue each other out of the mall, kind of like it does at 9-11, you know, with the attacks. Um, but, yeah, you know, panic panic is, 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 doesn't happen as much as people think. I mean, as a fraction, doesn't happen as much as people think it does. So what I want you to leave here with the takeaway point is – that um, you need to have situational awareness. You really need to be aware of what's happening around you. When you walk into places and, of course, these exit signs, and just watch what other people are doing. I've learned so much about human behavior. Um, and Scott Adams, the, the the guy that writes the Dilbert cartoons, has a number of books you know out there, too, where he talks about persuasion, persuasion, things like that, um, and just human psychology in Good stuff, you know, to kind of look into. Um, but, you know, you, you can learn so much just by being observant, just by being observant. And I feel that that has helped me so much in just navigate my environment, especially we went down on our trip toward, you know, to Disney and, and just navigating, understanding, um, you know, people who might be anxious about things, my own my own environment when I'm at different locations where I'm positioning myself. So if anything did happen, I'm closer, you know, uh, to an exit versus, you know, trying to weave my way back through like what might be a, a create, not a, not a panic crowd, but just a crowd. I mean, the people are, who are going to tend to try to go back through the way that they came in. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's all of these types of things. It's all these types of things. So, Again, um, this is the Safety Doc, and I want to give a shout-out to all of my supporters. Thank you. Please follow the Safety Doc on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, at SafetyPhD, at SafetyPhD. Um, you can follow the show on YouTube. The show is also on you know, SoundCloud, or it will be, if not on SoundCloud, somewhere. But it is on SoundCloud. I do post that on Twitter, you know, where the show's at. But please follow. Please comment. I do a blog post with every show. You can go to safetyphd.com. It's a terrific site. Um, but for all of you, you are a, a brilliant audience. You're a brilliant audience. Keep yourself safe. Keep your kids safe. Keep
Ho, ho, ho!